welcome to the Show Up Podcast, a place where we explore leadership and how it's showing up for us in the world in which we work, and a space for you to explore what leadership means in your context, how you show up, how you turn up to be the best leader you can be in the world that you work in today. In this episode, we explore the idea that there may be an intergenerational difference in the workplace. We get into some of our own experiences of that and also start to ponder what that might mean in the way businesses work today and crucially how those leaders that we're talking to like you can show up in the workplace and make the difference that they really want to make. So sit back, relax, enjoy the episode and really start to think about you know, what could be the story behind the actions that I'm asked of by a leader of me and the actions I ask of others as I Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are we both today? Yeah, not bad. Thanks, Graham. Not bad. Cold, getting warmer, but not bad. If only people could see that I was wearing a tea cozy on my head Indeed. to record this. And it, Jamie, it is a visual has... treat, actually. <laughs> Jamie, how are you, my friend? <laughs> I echo the visual treat that we're, we're, we're experiencing right now. Um, very, very uh, reflective today. Um, cold, yes, but reflective. Ah, interesting. Maybe we'll get into that. So, cause, yeah, because I've been reflecting a little bit lately, actually, of this this thing I noticed a long time ago. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take us all back on a little bit of a journey. Um, I didn't have hair back then, so not too much has changed. Um, but it was um, it was an annual review that I had, and you know I'm. This was, I must have been about 29, 30 at this age. So really starting to get into leadership. I was leading a supply chain for a, a pharmaceutical company. And um, from a, how the supply chain worked point of view, we'd had a really productive year, right? We'd managed uh, stock shortages really, really well. We were commended by the Department of Health for how, for the, by the Department of Health as to how well we've handled supply shortages. We'd saved as a function for nearly five million pounds worth of sales from various different mechanisms and things that we'd use, we struck good deals. The supply chain was working really, really well, better than it had done in any year previously. And it came to my annual review. <laughs> and you chaps might remember, uh, the old performance standards that organizations had three point scales, five point scales at objective above objective, severely above and the same below. And I remember receiving the quantified rating as at objective. So on standard performance. Interesting. We've beaten our objectives that were set for the year, but you've graded me as on standard performance. It's like, okay, interesting. And as you might recall with these things, they come with this, here's where you've done your strengths and here's where your development areas are. And the strengths 
was a quite a long list communication management engagement collaboration that kind of list of stuff that you know i felt was needed in that role and was getting the success that we'd had which was great and then came the area for development <laughs> and all it said was keep doing what you're doing <laughs> you chuckled Derry. <laughs> yeah and I remember coming, hang on a minute. You've told me I've not exceeded expectation. <laughs> you've told me I've got a load of strengths and all you've said is keep doing what you're doing with no further detail. <laughs> and I was like, and this, the, the, the directory give me that feedback was let's say three years off retirement. And I just remember sitting there going, why is there a difference? Why is that the feedback I've been given? Because the qualitative data and the quant data just doesn't match up, in my opinion. And it, it got me wondering, is there a difference by the way generations see this stuff? Is there intergenerationally a difference? And do you think that was a generational thing or a thing specific to that individual and his stage of his career journey? Good question. Don't never know. But I remember the lens I took away from it was he just doesn't understand me. Yeah. So from a leadership perspective, regardless of what the reason was, the feeling you were left with was this person who's leading me doesn't understand me, doesn't care about me, isn't yeah. interested in my development, isn't interested in me improving. Mm. Just, yeah. Stay just there. doesn't get it. Yeah, don't get it. Not the most motivational uh, experience, I'd suspect. No. <laughs> Quite confusing, actually. Really confusing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet you would be regarded, based on what you've described, as being somebody who's performing at a very high level, making a big contribution, and therefore would be part of the talent that they would want to both attract, develop, and retain. According to the rhetoric of where the organisation was going from a talent strategy, Yes. So what was the impact of that on you and your motivation and your interest in staying there? Uh, demotivated me massively. I actually found it really, really confusing. Um, you know, I'd, I'd stepped into my second leadership role at that stage, but it was leading process with people with it rather than leading people to deliver process, let's say. Um, so there's a lot of cross-functional working, a lot of collaboration. Like I, I hardly ever sat at my desk. I'd be with the legal team to get some legal stuff written. I'd be with the supply chain team to understand all the stock structures. I'd be with the marketing team to help understand how this impacts their uh, sales strategy. You know, I'd be across the business. I'd be updating the general manager to say, look, a delivery tomorrow is going to be booked either at 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. If it books at 1 p.m., it goes on your November sales. It's 3 million quid. If it goes at two o'clock, it's on December sales and it's three million quid then. Don't be alarmed if you know that that number could sway your whole month type conversation, you know. So, yeah, just fascinating experience. So the confusion yeah. about what that's meant for you, yeah. the perception that there was some kind of difference between how the the boss, the leader, your leader, the generation uh, different to you 
was looking at what you were doing and your understanding of what that meant um, mm. were yeah it was what it was like the residual effect of this mm. I, it, it's funny you should bring that up it's, it's funny you should bring that up this week okay why, why is that I'll try and explain it by uh, the most discreet manner I, I possibly can I sense an NDA I, is behind that. <laughs> yeah. So anybody listening to this will have to sign an NDA before they stop listening to it. So we'll send out NDAs as part of the, uh, the podcast, anybody who signs up. Um, so an organization that I was invited yesterday to um, do a little bit of work with uh, as a favor for a friend, a wonderful friend doing some fabulous work with a, actually what could be an inspiring organization and probably is in many parts of the world. Um, and the piece of work was really to start to help to listen to that organization as it starts to define the type of organization, the type of system it wants to become in terms of culture and how they work and how they interact. And there was a small group of people uh, yesterday to help to develop some ideas around what kind of questions would you therefore ask of the population to understand where it is now and how it's shifting. And in the course of that conversation, we had a mix of a fabulous mix of people, people who've been in the organization for 20, 25, 30 years, uh, some who just recently joined, um, some very talented, very diverse uh, representatives of gender, age, and so on and so forth. Anyway, the story that sparked my memory and therefore association with this surprise was from a extraordinarily quiet at the start of the session individual who appeared not really to want to share their voice. And by the end of the session, they were eloquent, vocal, articulate, uh, in ways that I can only just now sit back and admire one day later. And they described a moment in time in this very large, very, very influential organization that perhaps personifies the reality of the intergenerational difference that many organizations maybe are aware of or maybe not. We were working through a history of what got them to where they are. And there was, a, there was a moment in this history, which was about a party that had taken place in which I thought, wow, this is great. This is a party moment, an event that's taken place where this individual has experienced something that has opened her, her eyes to what this organization is all about, thinking that this was a positive story because of the way in which she was introducing it. Only to realize after about one sentence, but she said, I saw all of the organization in one place for the first time, and I realized how out of date they were. Hmm. And I was like, oh, not expecting that. Help me understand a little bit more about what you mean by out of date. They were running a competition. There was a tombola, a tombola that everybody took part in, and there were prizes for the tombola. And the tombola prizes were male or female prizes. For the men, it was a bottle of wine. For the women, it was a decorative bauble to go on a Christmas tree. And she wow. was shocked. 
and all of the other people who were part of her social group, younger, I'd say sub-28, 29, mid-20s-ish, they were equally shocked. No one else in the room of several hundred people seemed to be surprised. And she said to me, it was a really telling symbol of what this organization stood for and how it operated, how it saw, saw itself. A combination of, it's okay to do this, number one. For her, that was just like a, wow, this is okay to do this in this day and age, in her words. Secondly, the majority of the people that she saw, she described them as out of date, out of touch, but enormously experienced. None of them registered or could understand why she might feel the way she did. Yet she was part of a smaller group of people who were like, wow, this is just actually wrong on, on a number of different levels. That same group of people yesterday were also highlighting in a separate part of the conversation one of their biggest challenges as a sustained organization that has, as I said, massive influence across uh, our society, both geographically where we live, but across the rest of the world as well. Getting the right talent attracted with the right attitudes and the right capabilities in the right roles to do the right stuff. And if I put that up on a poster and said, if that's one of your big challenges, genuinely, and that's one of your fundamental three things that you've got to get right from now on, and over here, the very epitome of how you operate is something that those same talent people that you're attracting say is out of date, and you can't see it, and you don't understand it. How big could this intergenerational conscious gap be in that kind of system. And it got me thinking all the way back from my, on my journey back from yesterday to say, how often does it take something as simple as a party to surface the reality of the intergenerational difference that actually could be the divide, the social delamination layer between the people you're trying to attract to make whatever enterprise you're part of fabulous and sustained and the people who are running it. That's a, that's a fascinating, fascinating story, Jamie. Um, in a way, it doesn't surprise me that people have that attitude, but equally, like, it's also, it's also deeply shocking to me that people aren't aware that that type of thing could be controversial these days. And I think overall, that's left me thinking, like, what... I don't, know, I don't know exactly the best way to phrase this, but like, is it? I sense there's like a there's a a responsibility as a senior leader who's you know in however you might classify yourself in an older generation. There's some level of responsibility to adapt, but then who is that responsibility to? Is that a societal responsibility or is it a organizational responsibility? And what I mean by that is, do we should leaders be adapting to what society more broadly now deems acceptable or unacceptable? Or should they be focused on 
what is going to be most effective for the stated aims of the organization that employs them, that they work within. Brilliant questions. And then the natural knock-on of that is like, what if those two things aren't aligned? Yeah. And there may well be lots lots of situations where they're not aligned, where the thing that will drive success for that organization goes counter to societal norms. Where does a leader... I think that's part of the challenge, right? Because I guess there's an aspect of says this organization, what what is the customer goal that we're servicing? Are we servicing, let's say, let's use a very extreme example. Is our service meals on wheels? So it's for people who require meals to be delivered for them and cooked for them and prepared. So is that honoring the, does the organization to need to work and think in a way that honors what that customer base wants? Whereas if it's a up and coming streetwear brand, let's say, that needs to be able to engage in a 20 to 30 year old audience, does the organizational structure, irrespective of the age of an experience of the people working in that structure, need to be able to work in a way that meets its customer base where it's at. The other thing that then comes up for me is if you take the same lens, but replace customer with employee base, I can imagine the model that's going to work very well for let's use one of the British stalwarts, Marks and Spencers, for example, or where their working population tends to be in the latter third of their career does the way that the organization communicate with its employees need to be more tailored towards that rather than, again, a a company that's completely remote working so people can work anywhere they want in the world. Slack is the only medium they use to converse and make those things happen. There's some of the first thoughts that come up for me to to that, Derry. Yeah. That brings to mind an example I saw when I was working at Bain, actually, which was a heritage whiskey brand. And they had this massive issue that their customer base, they had this aging cohort of customers. And because of the brand positioning and the way that they did their marketing and the heritage of the brand, it was almost impossible for them to add new younger customers to that brand. So that they either had to say, right, well, we're just going to milk this existing cohort for all, as long as we can, or we have to find a way to disenfranchise our existing customer base and appeal to younger customers. And that's a really difficult strategic decision. To your point, Graham, then you've got to hire completely different people for those things. Like if your marketing has always been through traditional channels and suddenly you say, well, we need to appeal to a demographic that now spends 50% plus of their attention on TikTok, that's a completely different person you're hiring to make TikTok videos to the traditional marketer that you had Mm. before. And a, different, a completely different way of leading them. So I think that is a, is a major issue that organizations have. And I would add into that. Those organizations are aware of the Kodak moment. Yeah. Because what, when you speak there, Netflix, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Remote, like we, we either completely transform to meet today's society or we get swallowed. Because those so people if we take that back to a, long. Sorry, go on. If we take that back to an individual leader... So these organizations can get a sense that they need to transform. Individual leaders are, in my experience, I think a bit slower to transform. 
So you will get in a cohort of leaders in an organization, you'll get some who are natural evolvers and transformers who naturally shift with the macro trends that they're experiencing and the employee trends and the customer trends they're experiencing. And you'll get others who are resistant to that paradigm shift. I mean, that is how scientific revolutions work. That's where the word paradigm shift came from in Kuhn's famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, is you get this buildup of pressure and then a fundamental shift. So as a leader, should you be at the forefront of that? Should you be a fast follower who realizes something is changing or should you dig your heels in and say, well, this has always worked and it's still working, so why would we change? How do you judge what type of changing leader you should be? I, I would I would point us all to earlier episodes. Um, there's no right answer. Um, you will sense in yourself where you might be starting to drift from what feels like it's really working. Um, probably before the results show you that you're starting to drift. To drift. Um, and as I listen to both of you, I'm thinking, just like you're saying, Derry, that there's a whole bunch of people, leaders, who will have got to the influential stage. That's again the golden age of leadership we're describing of as they start to become leaders, striving to make an influence on the system in which they are currently operating or the system they're creating. Um and as long as they build the muscle of self-awareness to notice what it was that inspired them to get on that journey that made them feel uncomfortable about the absence of what they were trying to create or the reason why they were trying to do it the way they were at the start and they hold on to that then they might as they expand the influence of and the touch of what they're engaged in start to feel more broadly is this still in touch with what my environment my context my habitat still needs or am i starting to become self-serving is it about me now rather than it or us the moment there is a that little cognitive signal however it might show up physically emotionally spiritually of it's now more about what i could stand to lose as opposed to what i'm trying to create those are very very early warning signs which i think um so many people overlook because actually the size of the prize at that point is more attractive than being aware of how they might be drifting off path. And that is the point at which you can start to see a shift from the disruptors, the creators into the trying to preserve something. And it's that sort of transition, which I suspect as a hypothesis, just to stick out there is the point at which you start to get an intergenerational delamination. You shift whatever age you are at whatever stage you are into the, we need to now preserve something because I stand too much to lose. I stand to lose too much if this changes. Then I stand to gain if it does into a population that starts to become out of touch with those who are coming up the same path that I followed or those who follow a different path but just want to disrupt what's there. And watching that person yesterday, watching my kids 
uh, I think you're talking about brands, watching my kids follow things like Cortez, brands that are emerging that are to totally trying to disrupt the whole idea of um, not only brand marketing, but social media as well, to get a presence in the world. I realized that I just, you know, I'm just, I'm just fascinated by it, but I just don't understand it. But I've got to recognize that I can't hold on to what I've had. Um, otherwise, I become the enemy. I become the thing, the system that they are rebelling against. So how, given that, how do you sort the signal from the noise? So you, you could get that cognitive dis dissonance. You could get that sense that something needs to change. And a lot of the data that you're processing to, to get that could be what other people are talking about what they're saying is important, their opinions on how things should be run or should be done or the ideas that they bring. And there's actually, there's a, there was a BBC article uh, last week on this, on this topic. And there was one part of it that, uh, so it's called can younger workers speak up without managers bristling. And um, there's one passage in it that, that stood out for me. Some of the workplace rules of the past have simply woven themselves into daily life as norms Boomers expected deference from younger generations and Gen X largely complied, says Shaw. Gen X learned to just keep their mouths shut because it made life easier. That leaves two generations, Boomers and Gen X, who are used to the idea of paying your dues before speaking up, managing two new generations, Millennials and Gen Z, who want to speak up. And I think the, the ethos there is... Younger workers want to be able to speak up, express their ideas, express their thoughts. Uh, an older generational leader, and by this definition, uh, that's boomers and Gen X. So just outside our golden age of leadership. Um, in fact, probably a little bit outside because millennials are, some millennials are just about enough. I think technically I'm a millennial at 42. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, yeah, the research, 1980 is seen as one of the thresholds for it, but there's evidence that suggests from yeah. 1974 these behaviours started to show up that would be characterised as a Gen X. So I was well ahead of my time then. If yeah. that's the way you want to take that insight, Jamie, you take <laughs> it that way. <laughs> so the question I'm seeing with now is, you want to encourage younger workers to speak up, like, and younger workers want to speak up, but when younger workers speak up and share ideas, they are not doing that from the same basis of experience and breadth of understanding that someone with that someone older may have, or not older necessarily, but someone with more experience in that mm -hmm. field may have. But they may, and this is a bit of a trend in society more broadly, they may weigh their opinion just as highly as the person with more experience and more facts and more data who's done more thinking and more analysis mm -hmm. because we live in a world now where everyone's opinion is equally valued. So you could have an awful lot of opinions being expressed and a lot of noise. And then as the leader who's thinking about changing and adapting and working intergenerationally, you've got to pick out the signals that really matter. So how do we, how do we tune into those signals pick up the ones that really matter whilst not demotivating the young worker who is bringing all of their enthusiasm and energy and ideas into the mix and wanting to be heard, even if their ideas are rubbish. 
if I if I put this through the lens of, as we say, these golden age leaders, the leaders of today that are going to be the leaders of tomorrow, if we put it through that group's eye, I'm going to borrow one of Jamie's phrases. Range. Um, he's, he, he's for those who are listening. Jamie's smiling wryly right now. He says, "Where's he going with this?" He's actually listening to me. Um, but yeah, if you think it's one of the things that could support this is the range of today's leader for tolerance and curiosity. I know we've talked about that in various different ways, but specifically in this one, their ability to almost step out of themselves for five minutes. And for, let's say, the more experienced generations, ask, well, why might they be thinking it's like this? And for their generation or the younger generations, why might they be thinking it's like this? And see if they can just take a, a broader view for a moment to almost suspend their own judgment long enough to be able to work out what they need to do to then lead that cohort that they've got in front of them. Like, and often, I've often observed a, a difference that experienced generations are very happy to dig in themselves and work out the answer themselves. That's their default problem-solving approach. And facilitators like ourselves have gone in and helped them collaborate to problem-solve and develop that muscle. For the younger generations, collaboration is almost the norm because it's been ingrained to them from the very, very start. So they don't need to be told to collaborate because they're like, we do it. I was with a group last week that, and I said, I messaged someone with it, I can't remember who, and I said, this is the team of the future. 120 people from around the world who didn't know the answer but were hell-bent on collabor collaboratively growing enough to find answers that work every single day. And it was nuts because it didn't have to be told to them. It was just their nature. And I was like, wow. I know teams that are light years away from that. <laughs> so I think for that leader, it's about their ability to just step back long enough to see what is the field of play that I've got, what are their motivators, what are their drivers, and how do I need to create the spaces for this group to be led forward in a style that's going to work for me? Your thoughts, chaps, on what could be done? Um, hold on less tightly. There's a phrase that just keeps coming to mind, which is one of the most difficult things to do when you're you know, your trajectory is all a bit about control and influence and delivery and performance. Um, this sort of paradox of the further up the career path through into and then through the golden age of leadership, as we keep describing, into what I'd call enterprise leadership, creating space for others is hold the edges of the space and allow the people like the ones you've just described graham and i remember you messaging me and going wow this is the kind of this is the kind of group i just love to work with because of the energy and the freedom with which they're exploring things and so on and so forth and you described one of the leaders of that group and you said i don't actually know who runs who in this team 
or this group, but there's one person who just seemed to hold the space lightly to allow this to happen. Holding it lightly requires great self-awareness of how much you don't do that you feel in, in, you know, inclined to do. Because you couldn't have got there without having done a bunch of stuff to perform well, to get selected, to be the leader. Now you've got to stop doing it because you've got to create space for somebody else. You've also got to recognize that it's not going to be your idea necessarily that's the best idea from now on. It's not your practice that's the best practice. And it may not come from a simple yes, no, right, wrong answer. It's going to be, you've got to try a bunch of stuff, fail fast, all the things that we keep talking about. Brilliantly easy to say, but how do you hold the space in which that can then start to emerge? That transition point can't, in my opinion, happen overnight. You don't get to 40 and go, I've learned enough now and go, I'll switch on, hold, hold lightly. It is increasing awareness of self's ability to let go when is it too difficult when am i still drawn into control stuff when am i doing it unconsciously um but there is there is definitely a transition point and i think transition point um to again to an earlier conversation we had could be imposed upon you dependent on role you are now appointed into a role where you are in charge of a team of teams those team of teams have got to be given the freedom and the managers of those teams and the leaders of those teams have got to be given the freedom to create, fail, succeed, grow. Um, that could be imposed upon you. Well, it could just be that you're an entrepreneur and suddenly you get to a, a scale where you, you've got to let go of the original idea and allow it to flourish. There's so many founders or co-founders. I'm a co-founder of an original business and I failed in in allowing that to fully become what it was going to become um, because I couldn't let go. Couldn't let go of my view of what I thought it was going to be and, and allow it to flourish. So this transition moment and the awareness of it, that takes practice, takes great self-awareness, takes great humility, takes great vulnerability. All of these things don't just happen overnight. Uh, and I think to our earlier conversations, the sooner you start to, to recognize these are little muscles that you can start to build. And you don't have to build them overnight. You don't have to build them to be world-class at them. But without them, transitions from I'm just running a team, I'm running a couple of teams, to I'm now creating space for people to really flourish will become a big shock. Because I think that transition moment, that what I could potentially, you could call almost like the intergenerational moment um, becomes quite a big divide. Um, just on this point, Graham, you seem very interested in this. <laughs> I, I might have done some um, research into it. Now, help me help remind me why you're so interested in this and what was actually the nature of your thesis. Uh, so my master's thesis was... Um, what are the differences between Gen X and Y in terms of becoming a successful leader? Primary conclusion, there wasn't actually a difference between the two generations in terms of how they approach leadership. It was whether they were given the opportunity to lead determined their view on leadership success. So I interviewed... Um, Gen X leaders and Gen Y leaders. I interviewed Gen X non-leaders and Gen Y non-leaders. 
what's what makes a successful leader great well, just uh in terms of the terms we were using before gen gen y is equivalent to millennials yes yes the, sorry yeah. yeah i was remember it in thesis language rather than common language no no that's fine <laughs> i just wanted to understand great clarification Derry. thank you it, um I know I appreciate that you haven't done your research on Gen Z, but no. what are your more casual observations about their leadership Ooh. style versus X and Y? More collaborative. A greater capacity for considering anything to be possible, which also comes with a greater disregard for history. <laughs> Yeah. So they almost seem shocked that there might be an historical attempt at this that's failed. They're more willing to experiment with it in today's society in the in the anticipation of success. Does that bring with it a shadow behavior that leads them to disrespect or disregard the experience of their more experienced colleagues? I think it can come across like that for sure. And I don't think it's deliberate. I think they just don't know another way. So they default to the first way. And I and I think that's a really valid point for leaders of that group is to note that they may favor just their first instincts highly. And they're comfortable with that instinct and following it through to where it gets you because there's in their eyes, there's either success or learning. There's no success or failure parameter. That's really but, interesting. But I also think they've got to then sit back. They've got to be encouraged to sit back and just think of the impact because it's a bit bulldozery. And there's an assumption of it will be my way and you will adapt to what I need. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. It takes two to tango in this. And I think it might be worthwhile considering the other side of the, the partnership for the impact some of this has. Because it can be, like you say, it can be wonderfully catalytic and it can transform businesses, that kind of disruption and that anything's possible approach, right? We've seen it. But like say, there's a shadow side of that. It says, what, what is the consequential impact of that and across the system? I, I know an organization recently, um, MD has changed from a boomer to a millennium. Millennial is deeply ambitious, doesn't know the traditional organizational history and has got big growth on, on, he sees the potential for big growth. This like four times over 10 years, current turnover levels, wonderfully opportunistic. There is a member of the senior leadership team who was the close ally of the previous leader with the new with the new leadership coming in, his reaction has been very, very uh, toxic for him. But also his behavior consequentially is actually proven to be toxic for the organization as a result. So that shift can have, like say, it's got good and bad always associated with it if that can take place for a, an organization going through that shift. In my experience my initial reaction to that is that it's just so necessary to tap into that energy though and, and not just write it off yeah. I, I, it brings to mind um 
I spent about 18 months consulting to Royal Mail um, back in 2014 when they were going from public ownership into private through the IPO process. Mm -hmm. And just before I'd got there, they had run a a fairly extensive process with their internal innovations team to crowdsource ideas from their 100,000 frontline workers. So they said, and I think it's a valid approach, you people are on the front line every day seeing what's going on. What can we do to improve? How do we shift our operations from handling letters to handling more parcels, et cetera, et cetera. And they crowd hundreds of ideas, hundreds of ideas. And then the central team that was managing that process got them into a spreadsheet. I, I genuinely think it was something like eight or 900 individual ideas. The central team ran a series of small group workshops to go through all of those ideas and essentially decided in a few seconds flat on nearly all of them, that'll never work. And they they took forward three to work up a bit more broadly and all three of those were dead within six months. And that example for me is the similar to the example where you have younger Gen Z workers bringing all this blank sheet of paper, first principles, gut instinct, ideation into an organization and the older people saying, oh no, that'll never work because we did that in 73 and it failed and just shutting all the ideas down really quickly. And I think that that's a really dangerous dynamic for an organization that wants to innovate and 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 change change the way they do things. And I think where I'm coming back to on all of this to to pick up Jamie's point earlier and actually use you use the word first Graham is curiosity. And actually wherever you're at in this the stage of your journey if you can keep that mindset of curiosity that's how you navigate through all of this isn't it? No, so part of what I'm thinking is in the early stages of your career, you want to be striving for clarity of ideas, developing a framework for the environment that you're working in that allows you to think within that and join together dots and, and think clearly. Hold that framework really lightly, as lightly as you possibly can, and bring that curiosity that enables you to try and understand new information and either incorporate it into your framework or change your framework if you have to. And I think if you can do both of those things, then no matter where you are in your journey, you can adapt to this new stuff that's going on at the appropriate time. So you have the the kind of clarity of the framework plus the curiosity. Those two things together enable you to kind of function through all of this and and bring in new ideas. And then the other phrase that sprang to mind when you were speaking, Jamie, was um, the, on, well, there's a phrase that I'll come to in a sec, but the the other angle on this is is time horizon. So if you are a leader with a sufficiently long time horizon, you will naturally be able to allow your team space to experiment and fail and learn and adapt Whereas if you have a very short time horizon, you're going to start panicking about, well, if they do this wrong, we're going to miss our quarterly numbers. 
And if we miss our quarterly numbers, I'm not going to get paid my bonus. And if I don't get paid my bonus, I can't buy the kids the Christmas present they wanted or we can't go on holiday next year. And all of these things that are not really important in the grand scheme of things start to take precedent. And they, um, the phrase that uh, a friend of mine from uni first used, I think it's probably quite common, but um, good judgment comes from experience. No, what's the phrase? Good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. And if you don't allow your team space to do things that feel wrong to you, how the hell are they going to learn whether they're right or wrong? And every now and again, they might do something that you think is the wrong thing to do and it might work out and you might go, oh, interesting. Why was that? How do I need to adapt my framework to incorporate this new piece of understanding of this thing that actually worked. But if you have that short-term mindset, you're not going to give your team space to fail and develop their own good judgment and then be beneficial to you for years to come because they're always going to be just reliant on you saying, yes, that's a good idea based on my years of experience. So I get this clarity, curiosity, long-term perspective. That's where I'm by noodling out on all this yeah right. clarity cl clarity curiosity a long-term perspective what what about to, to throw a bit of a slightly sort of devil's advocate uh, element to this what if conflict is a necessary part of the evolutionary process in which case what we're describing here just describing in terms of observing is actually a very important part of the innovative evolution of organizations that without intergenerational friction entrance into the world of professional environment organizations wouldn't try and break stuff if everything was harmonious oh i'm working for a fabulous organization everybody who, who's leading this organization they love all my ideas and we just do everything that you know everybody likes and it's fabulous there's no reason to try and upset the apple, apple cart you know, change anything because it's all working beautifully. How innovative would that organization become? So I'm just I'm just wondering whether what we're describing here is um, something which is greatly enhanced by curiosity, genuine, authentic, self-aware, and at times vulnerable curiosity, excitement, almost fun, frivolous. Let's just see what happens here. With an understanding of the limitations of risk in which you're doing it um the idea of doing that in a space which allows for conflict as well in fact encourages it to the extent that it then allows people to see and experience diverse perspectives and opinions so that it's not just one great idea that we're all harmonious around it's there are three ideas we've got to try out because we can't agree on them. What if that is an actual necessary consequence of the intergenerational stuff that we're describing? I I agree with that, with the slight nuance that it ideally is what I would call clean confl conflict, if I could speak. Clean conflict. So... Because many organizations, and I've been in so many boardrooms, where conflict is an ego war. Yeah, it's about um, power, personal power on the influence of blah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. And 
people are people are triggered and they're defensive of their idea or they're defensive of the status quo or they're defensive of how they've been doing things. Whereas what I would describe as clean conflict comes from that place of curiosity where you are you you are striving to help the other person articulate their idea as clearly as they possibly can so that you can understand it properly so that you can then debate and argue whether it's better or worse than your idea you're not trying to win a battle you're letting go of the any desire to be right so if you have conflict at that level then i think it works i don't know if you're if that's what you're talking about if you're talking about more of a actual clash that can uncover emotional issues as well graham you're looking pensive Yeah, I wonder whether there's an, even a fundamental difference there. Some people will see it as conflict. Some will just see it as a difference of opinion. <laughs> so for me, yeah. when I hear conflict, it has that emotional charge to it. And as you both said, you know, it, it sparks ego. It sparks a power struggle. It sparks a, I'm right, you're wrong. Can It can bring that kind of emotion to a table. Whereas some people will look at it and just go, well, you've got that opinion, I've got this opinion where we're going to net it out and they neutralize the emotional piece almost instantaneously. Um, I don't know. That, that's what was going on in my head. Just as you said that, to be honest. So how, how much, how much is a, let's say a leadership responsibility for thinking, bring it back to our, our massively leadership. increasing, leadership. Massive, <laughs> the, the massive audience that we now have all 17 people, including my grandma. Um, How's she getting it, on with it? <laughs> she's loving every minute of this um it helps to sleep and um but all 17 of them are saying okay so how do we describe conflict then or how do we d describe different opinions um but isn't isn't one of the key aspects of the people who are able to in this case yeah, help to encourage positive productive constructive intergenerational um debate those who think about the subtleties of language so we're adding a, a, you know another layer of okay so as you start to progress recognize the language you've grown up with the language that's made you successful now needs to be tweaked how you frame things how you prime what's going on in the debate about we've got differing opinions here all three of them might be okay, but we've got to experiment as opposed to we've got different disagreement and we've got a conflict of ideas. Um, just describing exactly the same thing could result in very, very different outcomes. And language therefore plays a massively important role for anybody as they progress through their careers to understand what language resonates with generations that follow the one that they're in. Yeah, I think I've always thought that if leaders can expand their language range around the same subject, it's an asset in their capability. Whether they use language to be able to speak to the different senses or whether they um, use language to be able to speak to the different behavioral preferences or whether they use language to just be able to talk to the different generations and what resonates with them. I've always felt that a leader's articulation of language can be one of their greatest assets 
um, for communicating their awareness, they're communicating their intent, but also communicating with engagement uh, as well. Derry, what what what's your thoughts on what Jamie was saying? Yeah, I think it certainly sounds powerful to me. What I'm sort of sitting with is where the responsibility sits. So is it the responsibility of the older generations or yeah, even those in, towards the top end of our golden age of leadership bracket from 25 to 40 to understand what the hell new job entrants mean when they use various slang words, etc.? Or is it the responsibility of those coming into the workforce to adapt their language? Was it a bit of both? Is, yeah, it, I think it's exchange. is it just the I responsibility think it's of a natural leader to do that? Yeah. Is that yeah. I think it's exchange for both parties and a leader to be responsible for that, allowing that exchange to happen or raising awareness to that need for exchange. So yeah. as a leader in a kind of large organization, how actively like, is, is the natural consequence of that, that you should be seeking opportunities to build bridges across generations and actually have people meet and talk about who they are and what they believe and the environment they grew up in so that they can work together and understand each other better. The most so. successful, yeah, the most successful leaders I've ever observed worked alongside have always put enough time into, and I say enough time in for them in the context of what they're doing, skip level meetings, go meet everybody who's starting, go spend time with new entrants, understand a little bit about what motivates them and then help them understand that just coming in with a set of language from your business school, your graduate school, your whatever it might school, isn't necessarily going to help you necessarily because not everybody else, the 95% of the other people in the population understand it or appreciate that kind of stuff. But just to say, it's okay to start using it, but quickly learn how to adapt yourself whilst creating the space and opportunity and then modeling the listening and the subtleties of, well, how do we make sure, therefore, we don't alienate segments of our population, including including new, newer starters, with language we've always used? That What I'd call that skip level in old language focus, that desire to get out on the shop floor, that desire to go and be part of the business and understand all parts of how it's operating – are vital if you if you just sit in a boardroom if you just sit on the executive level if you just sit in the management suite or in your new office once you've been given the role or have got to that stage where it's now incumbent upon you you, you very quickly lose touch and you become part of your own bubble so i do think it's a bit a bit of both if i'm understanding you correctly there that is mostly a a, a move for the older generations to better understand the younger generations and coach them on how to integrate into the organization. Have you seen it where older generations have helped the younger generations understand who the older generations are? And that for me feels important as well, because, because particularly what we talked about earlier about how there is an element of disregard for that, the older generation reverse, reverse yeah. mentoring reverse mentoring yeah. reverse mentoring is one thing i've seen it particularly work well as well well i, I let, let me put it this way if the younger generations did one thing with this whole tolerance and understanding the curiosity piece and it's for me 
what what shows up for it is the understanding of the mechanics of an organization. Not everyone's done an MBA, right? Not, but people have done jobs, generally speaking. But one of the things, the weaknesses I see in knowledge and understanding and experience for the, some of the younger generations is what it actually takes to make a business run. P&Ls and balance sheets, to put it in numbers point of view. And I'm sure we've all heard people frustrated with the percentage of a pay rise, let's say, or the number of benefits that they get and why those benefits may not change over time. And all those mechanisms that organizations have put in, successful organizations have to put in place in order to survive, right? So if, for example, the P&L of a business is challenged at, at a moment in time, whether it's supply, supply and demand and all those kind of things, even some of those simple principles, I wonder whether sometimes it's on leaders to help recognize where there's a knowledge gap in younger generations, so rather than, because they can feel an emotional state, well, I'm not getting paid what I should be. Well, hang on a minute. Is the market that your organization office works in able to tolerate what you're actually asking of? Because it doesn't grow on trees, <laughs> does it? But, and so I think you're right, Derry. I think there's a piece there that says, if you look at it the other way, there's areas that the younger generations can start to expand their knowledge and capacity to be more, compassionate to the environment which some of these organizations work um, and again leaders should maybe create space for recognizing where that gap needs to close because if you look at a senior leadership team setting strategic objectives and you know business performance or reporting to a board that has a level of expectation or shareholders that have a level of expectation those are going to drive quite a large proportion of the decisions that are made that roll down an organization and without that understanding at the top end does that create a knowledge gap is my is what I'm can i put about. something out there right now which is i hope provocative but not necessarily so provocative it's going to start a firestorm even just between the three of us um, there's a whole section, there's a whole section about education that we probably want to talk about. And I'd love to bring in, um, when we can, some of our friends, colleagues, associates from one of the business schools or universities. So I think there's a massively important role that's currently being, dare I say, it, woefully, woefully shortchanged around preparation for entering the workplace by the educational institutions that are allowing people to leave those educational institutions believing that because they've got the qualification, they are the next big thing already hmm. without recognizing that what they're going to go into is a world of human beings that work in systems where there is something very different going to go on, where they want to benefit from what they've learned on their capabilities, but don't just show up saying, I've got three PhDs. So what? That that curiosity thing. So that that's where I think it's all very well saying, let the people who are starting start to become better at maybe asking better questions and so on and so forth. But let's recognize where they've just come from and the messages that they've absorbed and how they've been primed to start their jobs. And maybe the messages by the recruiters that have told them, come on, we'll offer you 100,000 plus if you're a lawyer and whatever it might be. How, what are their expectations about starting work? 
that that is right now something which I think needs to be examined as well. Otherwise, this intergenerational dissonance is likely to be more exaggerated as we go forward than uh, more aligned. See you.